You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. This is the first of a series of recordings that we're going to do in terms of getting to know the HRSA data request list that's submitted upon receipt of a notification of a HRSA audit. Rob, lots to talk about. We're going to break this up over the nine different sections of the DRL. Does that sound good to you? That sounds fantastic. I'm excited for this because uh, mostly because I, I'm, I'm supporting with, with some help from our team. Uh, two HRSA audits right now, and we just submitted data this past week, and so it's very fresh in my mind and very painful. little PTSD, but we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah, so we, we've been working off of an updated, so FY24 data request list that some clients that we worked with received from HRSA this past September, uh, but we have not yet seen an updated data request list specific to grantees. So we may come back and re-record some details if we see an updated or a refreshed grantee data request list. A lot of the elements are the same, but when we get into things like covered entity eligibility documentation, um, there are differences between hospitals and grantees. And, and we're working off the FY24 DRL for hospitals and the FY23 grantee DRL. So keep that in mind as you're listening to us talk about what is required or what's expected as far as uh, data elements in the DRL. First section. So let's start uh, section number one, policies and procedures. And there's uh, uh, a request in the DRL that asks for the covered entity to provide policies and procedures on a variety of topics. There are 14 different, I guess, subcategories. And before we get into those, Rob, just generally or at a high level, any thoughts or opinions around policy governance in the 340B world? Any specific department that should own them? Any anecdotes that you can share from managing covered entities in the past that may be helpful in, for a covered entity that's that's trying to wrap their hands around how to manage policies and procedures? You know, I, I personally feel it's a group effort. I think where I, I've seen covered entities or IDNs be the most successful is that where they, they they have a standing group that's responsible for the policy and procedures, you know, especially if you're an IDN and you have multiple hospitals, because then you have these nuances between sites that are subject to the GPO prohibition versus the orphan drug exclusion. Do you do NCOD lists for everybody or just the, the, the GPO sites? But, uh, but I do feel a couple um, probably best practices are one, plan on an annual update. And my recommendation would be plan on that annual update, maybe towards the end of the year or at the beginning of the year after the new data request comes out. So for instance, we have some updated data request items for the policy and procedures from the DRL, uh, 24 DRL that we just we just um, received. And so that gives you a time to be able to update it without having to update it twice. So that's one. The second one is do a good uh, gap analysis map of your policy and procedures. So um, you number it. I always like to give the letters because it sounds more impactful because there's A through N as in Nancy elements to your policy procedures that's on the data request. That's a lot, that's a lot of alphabets. Uh, it's a lot of letters. So. Yeah. So, so what I like to say is, and some of them have multiple components to it, right? So you really want to kind of take that and maybe put it on a spreadsheet and say, okay, where in my policy, like literally say it's in provision six on, pay, you know, and, and, and here's what it says even, or here, here's what it covers. 
And that way, you know, for sure, okay, I've covered that element. And that way, when a DRL comes out or if someone asks, okay, where's this, you can, yeah. can go directly to that policy. And sometimes it might be in multiple locations, right? You might cover something specific in, in, in a section here and then in a contract pharmacy section here. And so really understanding where each of those elements currently are in your policy and then making sure that you, that gap analysis um, covers all of them in detail and, um, and and just keep that updated. So that that's some, some of the things I'd recommend to covered entities as they go through this process. Yeah, we get, I've, I've gotten questions from clients that we've worked with who have multiple organizations or multiple covered entities within their, their health system. And one of the questions is, do we each need to maintain separate policy documents or can we have kind of a standardized system level policy? And, you know, we've seen no objections from HRSA that, you know, multiple covered entities be governed under a, a single policy and procedure manual, but you will be expected to provide a, a scope document. So I've had a number of Bivzel auditors ask for a scope document. So for a system level policy, we need a corresponding scope document that indicates which hospitals or which covered entities would be uh, included in the scope of, of that policy and procedure. So something to keep in mind if you've got multiple hospitals or clinics or locations kind of managed under the oversight of a, a single policy document. I guess from a policy organization perspective, any opinions on whether all of the elements that we talk about should be aggregated into a single policy or broken out by different sections? So maybe diversion prevention and GPO prohibition prevention or mixed use versus contract pharmacy uh, operations. Any thoughts around that, Rob? My personal thoughts? Uh, Hersa... Yeah, I guess your opinion. Yeah. Yeah, because HRSA doesn't care. I well, I don't know if HRSA cares, but they don't seem to say anything about it during HRSA audits. We'll just put it that way. I, I honestly don't know what they really care about or not. But we, we see some covered entities, right? They have six, seven, eight policies. And so each policy is a little shorter and it does cover a specific section. And then we see covered entities that have a single policy. I personally am a single policy um, person. I and, and the one reason is because what I find is when you have a lot of policies, you tend to have a definition section in each policy. And what happens from over time is they'll up, some covered entities will update a definition in one policy, but forget, oh my gosh, I actually propagated that exact same definition across all the policies or you know, in half the policies. And so tracking that to me gets kind of onerous over time. And then we start seeing some inconsistencies across the policies because you're opening up separate documents where I feel if it's all in the same policy, you have one set of definitions, so you don't run the risk of having different definitions and policies. You also, um, easier to search those policies and find what you need. So instead in the, in that, in a single policy, you just have sections, which would have been equivalent to, um, having separate policies. So that's my preference from an ease of use. But again, when, when we have, um, covered entities we work with that have them separate, I don't, I don't recommend they put it in a single policy because it's, I think it's a organizational decision and whatever they decide where we, we work with them and we do the edits just the same, but I, but I tend to find more errors in covered entities that have multiple policies versus a single policy, just just in my previous history, I'm sure. What what do you ha what have you seen in your audits, Greg? I think you know, see a bit of a mix. Um, you know, when, when we're working with someone to start, or you know, helping somebody kind of draft their initial cut of policies, you know, our template's based off of a single policy for all. But I have seen some covered entities say, "Look, we're breaking these out into separate components because it's easier for us to proceed through a review process." So if I've got a large 340B policy that requires system level approval for any changes. And I want to make one small change to how our 
recertification process is outlined in policy, that's going to open me up to soliciting input on a number of other elements within that policy around diversion prevention or contract pharmacy auditing. And sometimes it's difficult to push through minor changes when that single policy needs to go back for review repeatedly. So strategically, we break these policies up into separate documents to help with the management of uh, policy change requests and the approval process. But again, I don't think HRSA has a specific preference for how these policies are organized. So, you know, really, you know, I encourage folks just you know, apply the same logic and the same rationale for managing these policies as you do other policies that are addressing regulatory issues, Joint Commission, Department of Health issues, you know, use the same approach um, for the sake of consistency. Very good point, right? Um, if, if the, if, you know, whoever does your policy procedure user approval feels they need to have to read everything every time, that could be, that could be a lot of extra work if it's, because right, when you do a single policy, these things can get 20, 30 pages long. Um, I, I will say to that extent, though, there are some things I recommend not putting in the policy for that reason. Uh, for instance, if you are doing an NCOD list, a non-covered outpatient drug list, I often recommend referring it to in the referring to it in the policy and then having a separate kind of related document that way you only have because right something like that you're going to update more regularly potentially, and you don't want to have to open it up for a full policy procedure review and approval. You can just have the the you know the the attachment or the addendum reviewed, uh, and it's just updating it. And a lot of times, at least in my previous organization, we would call that an SOP yep. versus an actual policy and procedure. And SOPs uh, department head. So when I was a pharmacy director, I could approve the SOP that's related to the actual policy and procedure. But the policy and procedure, I either had to take the med staff or PNT, so that was a lot of extra work. And so we would definitely set up anything that had a lot more detail. Um, so our policy and procedures would tend to be more bare bones. Um, covering exactly what we needed to cover the bare minimum, and then the SOPs would have the detail that we could edit as we changed or adjusted processes or add, took or added drugs off their NCOD list and so forth. So, but a good point, um, if, if, if your policy and procedure approval process is a full review every single time, then, then it might be more advantageous to break it up. I never thought of that, actually, so that's a, that's a good learn for me. All right. Well, let's let's start talking about some of the elements that HRSA wants to see in your PNPs. And we'll start with letters A, B, and C, because I think they kind of blend together. I, I group these into a kind of a subsection of in and of themselves. The first A is description of your registration and recertification process. B is a process for ensuring that OPACE or the Office of Pharmacy Affairs Information System is up to date. And C, a process for determining what sites are eligible, the address, um, whether each service area and 340B drugs are purchased, ordered, or provided is reimbursable on the cost report um, or in your uh, grantee documentation. So kind of management of your covered entity on OPACE and eligibility of your covered entity. Yeah, I, I agree. Because when we do audits, we do a gap analysis of the policies and procedures. And A, B, and C is always like, all right. I was, Sometimes I wonder, why are these separate? Like A kind of is a registration research, and then the other two are kind of related um, so I agree. I always group those together as well. I mean, sometimes there are subsections within your registration section um, or your qualification section that you might kind of specifically say, okay, this is for recertification. This is for new sites. Um, and, and this is for child sites specifically and all those things. But, um, but I do agree. Those three are very, very related and you can knock those out pretty quick. Um, but, but a point here is sometimes I see that uh, covered entities don't 
touch specifically on one of those items. Like they don't actually cover recertification in detail or how often we're reviewing the child sites to make sure that they're there. You know, it's an easy one. It's like, hey, annually after the cost report comes out, we're going to review this. But just some people don't get that detail in there. So I do think it's important to read all three of those elements and make sure when you look at your research, your registration and recertification section that they're covering all three of those specifically as needed. Yeah. yeah so 1B is making sure that OPACE is up to date and a, a big change. I don't know if it's a big change or not, but a change within the last year has been that the qualification information tab on uh, covered entities parent listing needs to be updated whenever the Medicare cost report gets filed. So historically, you would update that during recertification. There may be a gap between when your cost report was filed and when you go to recertify, typically in August or September. But Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, the expectation now is that as soon as your cost report's filed, you're going to go in and update OPA, the OPACE uh, system with the new cost reporting information. Yeah, I agree. And and that's something we're trying to get out in front of people is that, you know, regardless of when your cost report comes out, whether it's November or May or when you're off cycles that some cost report or some people have that as soon as that's out, we recommend doing this process, right? Taking your trial balance uh, detail and your uh, your child sites and making sure that all of them are still eligible based on expenses and charges. And then, of course, if you have any new locations that now can be registered, making sure that you do that as soon as possible after the cost report comes out. But in addition, now you're going into that uh, qualification tab and where there is an edit button to the right and updating your cost report dates, uh, your dish percentage uh, and your filing date. Uh, because if you do get audited by HRSA and that's not updated, that does become a, a technical violation of OPACE database accuracy finding. Uh, so definitely, I think that should all be part of that. In fact, that's probably something good in your put in your policy that uh, you're going to not only you know confirm that your child sites and everything's still active and that you don't have to register anything, but that you're also going to make sure that the qualification tab is updated. Um, I think that'd be a nice add to the policy that we don't actually I don't see very often in there today. Yep. And again, 2C outlines some provisions around determining child site eligibility. We'll come back to that when we get into eligibility documentation or section two of the DRL, because uh, that's where HRSA asks you to provide crosswalk of your locations back to your trial balance or to your EHB. So um, probably uh, spend a little more time talking through some tips and tricks for what the process should look like when you're trying to determine site eligibility. Let's move on to 2D. And this is a, I think this is tough to concisely outline in a policy, and, and maybe there's more detail that goes into, in an SOP. Two, or 1D is description of procurement process. There'd be a lot to unpack, especially for a larger facility that's got very complicated drug procurement process. Yeah, and, and what's interesting, it, it also, and just for everyone, it's not, you know, when you think procurement in a hospital setting or in a clinic setting, you really, a lot of people think, okay, that's, that's the drugs we procure to administer to our patients. But uh, 1D specifically says including all pharmacies as applicable, or if applicable, is exactly how it's worded. And that's interesting because then you really have to think, okay, so I've got my mixed use setting and what's my procurement process for that? Really thinking about everything that goes into that. And right, and there's and then you have your regular, okay, with my wholesaler, how do I do that? And people forget, well, what about direct orders when it's not going through the main wholesaler? How do I handle when it's going through a vendor or a wholesaler or direct to manufacturer where there isn't uh, EDI feeds to my TPA. How do I do that? And then you have consignment. You really should address consignment. That's a big focus on HRSA audits. Almost, in fact, I can just tell everyone right now, if on if you get a HRSA audit, primarily hospitals actually don't see them asking grantees it very often, but they're going to ask, well, consignment, are you doing consignment? And if you're doing consignment, how are you doing that? Because that's often a very different process than a regular TPA process. 
then you've got to think about, okay, what about my in-house retail pharmacy? And even though it's, you don't have a lot of details because it's often handled by the TPA, they also want to, what's your process for procurement for contract pharmacies? Um, I, you know, and of course, if you have any alternative strategies for, for that, you may or may not want to include that in your, in your policy. <laughs> have, a, have a conversation with your consultant, compliance and legal before you do that. And then finally, don't forget that as some covered entities also have um, different process for clean sites uh, for, for infusion centers. And then also what about home infusion? And um, we have quite a few of our clients have home infusions that are um, you know, part of the covered entity. So it's one of the pharmacies and home infusion procurement can be very different from mixed use or clean sites or contract for, or your in-house retail. So it's, so it's, it's like a one line short request in the data request, but it does it can cover a lot of different pharmacies if you have those pharmacies in play. What about non-eligible locations? A lot of covered entities are buying drugs on behalf of you know, physician office practices or other locations that are not part of the 340B program at that covered entity location. Do you think it's reasonable to outline or do you think it's expected that that process is outlined here as well? I do, actually, because that can be, uh, especially for dish hospitals or pediatric or cancer hospitals subject to the GPO prohibition, that can be a risk. And I mean, and of course, I just, just to jump the gun a little bit, I mean, the next section, 1E, is prevention yep. of GPO violations. But if, but I think, you know, Hersel wants to know, okay, so you're, if you're procuring drug for non-qualified offsite locations, what's your process? I would even say if you're procuring drug for on-site non-eligible locations and you're subject to the GPO prohibition, therefore that actually has to be purchased at WAC, yep. you do want to, I would recommend delineating that in policy because you want to basically be upfront and say, hey, we are procuring for these non-qualified sites, but we're either doing all GPO or all WAC based on whether they're on-site or off-site. It really helps us understand, hey, we get, we understand what the GPO prohibition violation rules are and we're following them. So I would definitely put that in there as well. But I do find that sometimes in those non-qualified locations, maybe the covered entities not doing those acquisitions and those off-site non-qualified locations or on-site non-qualified locations are doing their own purchasing. And in that case, you know, it's a question, do you include that if they're doing their own thing um, since the covered entity is technically not doing the procurement? But I will say if the covered entity pharmacy is doing the procurement, even if they're using separate accounts, you want to yep. put that in there. And probably more importantly, if you're storing it in the pharmacy. So if you're doing non-qualified clinics on GPO, so you're carrying the prospective GPO inventory, and you're doing unit of use, so you can kind of save some dollars there, and you have a segregated inventory, you definitely want to put that in there um, because that that definitely is a risk that Hearst is going to want to take a look at. But Greg, I'll point out, I jumped the gun on that because that's one one H. So so maybe I'm, I'm mixing some of these areas up. No, no, I, I, I think you're right because I, there is a little bit of uh, overlap for some of these elements, even though they're not kind of lined up sequentially. So we may we come we may end up coming back to that that discussion here in a in a few minutes. Two E, or I'm sorry, one E and one F, I think go together because oftentimes so one E is prevention of GPO violations. And that again only is going to apply to your dish hospitals, pediatric hospitals, and then the freestanding cancer hospitals. And then one F is the definition for any exclusions to how you define covered outpatient drugs, which often is a measure that covered entities will use to address GPO prohibition. So um, you had already mentioned, not a great idea probably to keep a list of NDCs that satisfy F or your definition of NCOD in policy, but rather maybe categorically define them in an appendix of the policy. I, I do like that better. And and we, right, because NDCs come and go, it's so hard when you get that specific. And I, I guess I would say we do see a lot of specifics in policies, and I, I typically recommend against that because then you always have to remember, okay, if that changes, then I have to update it. So some people like putting their TPA names and, and details about systems and names of systems. I'm like, 
okay, but are you going to remember to update that if that ever changes, especially in contract pharmacy where you have multiple TPAs? Um, so, but this is a good situation. NDCs, I think, is way too granular for policy because NDCs come and go so often. So that's definitely one. In fact, NDCs, I typically recommend just keeping in a list, um, in a spreadsheet based on your TPAs exclusion list. And I do love what you just said, Greg, that a higher, you know, a, more of a kind of a catch-all categories for an NCO is like IV fluids, um, contrast agents, anesthesia gas, without getting to all the details of what those are. And you keep that separate list external. That's a good point. Yeah, and I, th I think this is an area, too, where that scope document that we talked about at the beginning, particularly for hospitals that are all subject or governed by the a single policy and procedure, it's important to delineate in that policy where certain covered entities may be subject to Section E and Section F here. So, you know, your orphan drug hospitals like Critical Access, Rural Referral Center, Seoul Community Hospital, they're not subject to GPO prohibition requirements. So those elements of the policy may not apply to those hospitals. So if, again, if your health system that's got a single policy and procedure document that accounts for all of these different provisions, you want to make sure that you have some type of index at the beginning of the policy that outlines which hospitals are subject to which parts of the policy. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, we didn't cover GPO pro prevention of GPO violations too much, but that's a it's it's important section because HRSA does want to know what are you doing to um, prevent GPO prohibition violations. So that is talking about, you know, to a certain extent how you're purchasing and how you're making sure you have accumulations and you're only basing accumulations and so forth. But and then of course those exceptions and, and how you do that. So it, definitely an important section because remember, GPO prohibition violations are con well, GPO prohibition compliance is a condition for participation. So if you're non-compliant with it, it does mean that you may be considered ineligible for the program for the time that you you are um, not in compliance with GPO prohibition. So that's a that's a catastrophic finding. So you know just making sure that you're you're covering all the bases for GPO prohibition is super important, um, and then making sure that you're following through with that in, in actual practice. Yeah, and again, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but uh, part H is you know 340B inventory. So I'm sure there's going to be some content in that section of your policies that's going to define what you're doing to ensure GPO prohibition. But we'll come to that uh, shortly. One uh, G is your process for conducting oversight of contract pharmacies, including internal audits and independent audits. Any thoughts on on this part of the policy? Well, it's um, I, I I always joke around with people because the one section, one piece that I don't see as often, I think, uh, well, you know, as we do repeat audits with some of our clients and you see it because we talked about it last time. But for new clients, I often don't see this done well. G is a tough one because now some people might have a separate policy for the internal auditing. So that's fine. So, you know, as even though I said at the beginning, I like one policy. I do like um, having an auditing guide of some sort, an auditing policy, because, again, that's something that may be updated more frequently. So back to your point at the beginning that, well. If you've got documents separated, then it's easier to update them because they're shorter and easier to get through your, your policy and procedure process. I think auditing is one of those that could be pulled out or you could leave it in the one main policy. Yeah. But the part about independent audits is the one that I think is missed a ton. I always, when I'm auditing a client or doing work for a client, I always feel bad because I tell them, this may feel a little self-serving, but I promise it's in the data request. They're going to ask about where is where in your policy does it talk about independent uh, mock aud or independent audits for uh, contract pharmacy oversight. And so I said, so here's our wording. I said, don't, and I've seen, what's interesting, I've seen some of our clients that say, yes, we do independent audits and Spendman does our audits. I'm like, okay, 
let's not put our name. Like, I love that you put our name, the, the, our company's yeah. name in there. But the reality is you want to make that generic, right? And yeah, I'd love brand, for you to. Brand agnostic, right? Right, right. Because you don't know when you're going to switch. So that applies to us as well. Uh, or whoever your auditor is, you know, make it so that it doesn't matter. And that way, if you do switch some year, then it's your cover. You don't have to go back and edit your policy. But but do find a spot under contract pharmacy oversight that you're talking about both what you're doing to maintain your own internal audits, as well as what you're doing for your um, independent external annual audit as well. When when we bring up the point about at, describing your your audit process and policies and procedures, some some folks get nervous and they are a little bit reluctant to or, or worried that they're going to have to share audit results during uh, HRSA audit discovery. What, what's been your experience, Rob, in terms of what is asked for, or what's collected during a HRSA audit to validate that you're performing internal and independent external audits? Yeah, I, I give HRSA a lot of credit here. Um, now, not to say there hasn't been an auditor here or there that wants to see a full report, but by and large, I don't believe HRSA actually is asking their auditors to do that because most of them will specifically say, for your annual independent audit, all we need is an attestation from your vendor um, and they'll talk about that includes when they did the audit, who did the audit, and what the scope of services was for that audit. They want to know what you covered, right? And as and we know what we have to make sure that's in there is that we covered contract pharmacy diversion, compliance, GPO prohibition, duplicate discount, all those things. So that's what they're asking for. They don't want to see the actual results because they know that's not fair for you to do your own kind of own quality improvement initiatives, and then for them to look at that and you know possibly use that to. Um, identify potential risk. Same thing for your internal audits. What they really want to see in a HRSA audit is show us kind of what you're doing. So a document says what you're actually doing, and then something that even shows us how you track that those are being completed. They, again, don't really need to see what your results are because that's really not fair for them um, to expect that you do robust internal audits and then share that information during an audit. And I think HRSA has been really good about that, and the Bazell auditors have been really good about that. And so if anyone's listening, we appreciate that. Mm-hmm. 1H, uh, similar to 1D, I think it's a really broad topic, how the covered entity accounts for 340B inventory, both physical inventory and virtual inventory replenishment. Again, a fairly complicated um, process, lots of steps involved. How do you make it concise for policy and procedure? Yeah, I think in this area, when you get into well, both procurement and inventory, I think sometimes gets put together because that makes sense. Um, and a lot of times that's just probably some of the heavier elements of your policy because you do, it is hard to do concisely. Um, but I think this is where you do want to separate. What I've seen work well is when you separate your virtual inventory um, CE accounting process, as well as your physical inventory processes and procurement. So that, um, so because they're going to be different, right? If you're doing virtual versus physical, but just making sure you delay how that's done and, and how you maintain that. Um, it's also a section, I, th- well, I guess on the procurement that people also sometimes will add their borrow and loaning process. Um, as well, because that can create some risk if it's not done correctly. So we let some people like to highlight that, so, you know, because it's procurement when you're borrowing loaning and that we're doing, you know, 11 digit NDC returns on that type of thing, if that if if you are. Um, but yeah, inventory is a tough one. How, what do you see as a inventory? Because I don't often see a ton on inventory. It's more around procurement and inventory is kind of just added as part of that. Yeah, I think most commonly we see it kind of you know, details around inventory management kind of kept separate outside of policy. So standard operating procedure primarily tied to the different applications that are used, whether it's a split billing TPA or, um, you know, wholesaler or some other type of application where they're recording maybe Pixis or automation inventory uh, reports or something like that. So not often seeing a lot of detail in 
the actual 340B policy, which I think is reasonable because some of that inventory management process is going to be dynamic and it'll change over time and don't want to have to rewrite your policies just to account for, you know, some technical updates in how you're you're managing your inventory. But uh, certainly need to be able to speak to it because we know that during the sampling portion of a hearse audit, hearse is going to do some tracer claims. They're going to want to take a number of claims that are audited and trace them through the accumulation process and understand the inventory management process for those NDCs in question. So even if it's not outlined in excruciating detail in your policy, you definitely need to have somebody that's able to articulate how it works at your hospital. All right. Um, 2I, or I'm sorry, I keep saying 2. I don't know why I keep <laughs> saying 2. This is the first section. So 1I and 1J uh, ask for details around prevention of diversion. So 1I is related to, it says at the CE. So I'm presuming we're talking about uh, clinic administered and hospital administered drugs. And 1J is prevention of diversion at all pharmacies, which can include your in-house retail pharmacies as well as your contract pharmacies. And they want a process that confirms how you validate site eligibility location, referral or, res or responsibility of care being with the CE, medical records, patient eligibility, provider eligibility, service within the scope of the grant, if it's a grantee covered entity, and documentation for waste and uh, expired drugs that are not dispensed or administered to a patient. It's all about diversion, prevention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big sections too, lots of bullets, right? Um, yeah. You know, one thing I'd highlight here, which is interesting, and, and, and sometimes we see covered entities going above and beyond here. And I just want to highlight Policy procedures is not a place going above and beyond is a good idea. And what I mean by that is HRSA has specific language around diversion, right? It's the patient definition. And when you start adding to that, you're basically creating a situation where, where it's almost like joint commission audits for those familiar with those, that you're, you're putting things in your policy that you now have to follow that HRSA was never asking for you to do. And so that's where I think the safest place here is it's to start off with is to take the 340 patient definition and regurgitate it in your policy, right? That's what we really want to see. There's one exception. Now, I don't want to give, I'm gonna, in fact, you know what? I guess we're going to give away the farm. There's a couple of things that we add. Wait, Greg, should we give away the farm? Yeah, might as well. All if right. Anybody okay. yeah. if you, for our five listeners out there, just kidding. I, we've heard so many people that tell us they listen and they like the podcast. And so weird place to tell you, but thank you for listening. And, and we love the feedback because uh, sometimes we wonder, is anyone listening out there? Um, but we hear from a lot of people they are. And um, and so now we know that you're out there and we just appreciate you. So so I guess some good free free tips here. And if your clients, you already have these, we've already edited them and redlined them into your policies, but maybe a little understanding of why we do that. So so although we say, yes, regurgitate the policy, one thing I want to remind people to be careful, the policy says healthcare professional, right? If you read the patient definition, quite often with new covered entities that we we work with, when I read that in their brain, they've already processed it to say healthcare provider. Yep. There's a difference between healthcare provider and healthcare professional um, because what we do is in the definition section of the policy, we actually define a healthcare professional more broadly. We say that, well, that's, yeah, that can be licensed independent practitioners like doctors and mid-levels, but that can also include nurses. It can also include pharmacists. It can re include respiratory therapists, radiology techs, all these other healthcare professionals that are taking care of patients. And the reason that's important is if you think about how drug orders can go into hospitals, now I know some big academics, all of their orders that come in are written by a provider that has some type of relationship with you. But there are small to medium hospitals, even some large hospitals that do take orders from external providers where you don't formally have a relationship. And if you look at all these elements in this diversion, right, provider eligibility, patient eligibility, 
uh, patient record, referral, site eligibility, all these things are in there. But the definitions is healthcare professional. So if you define it more broadly and you don't then define it as healthcare provider in your policy, then you can make that, that case where if you have an infusion center patient that gets an order from, say, a family practice doc out in the community that doesn't have a formal relationship with your covered entity or hospital, we can make the argument that the nurse or pharmacist that's providing that our healthcare professionals, by definition in our policy, are caring for that patient qualify. And I can't tell you how many times during a HRSA audit that's come up. And we've been able to talk through that and say in our policy, we define healthcare professional more broadly, therefore it qualifies. So just one little tidbit that if you don't have that, if you're not working with us and you haven't done that in your policy, strongly recommend that that provides a defensive place or def defensive argument for those situations when you have orders that um, where that provider who wrote the order doesn't actually have a relationship with the covered entity. So if you'd add anything to that, Greg, because that's, that's a little bit off topic, sort of, but uh, I think really important. No, I, th I think it is important. I think a lot of what Hearst is looking for here in terms of describing your processes for preventing diversion really gets outlined in policy by by your definitions. And there may be some statements invoking those definitions. But, yeah, you want to be thoughtful about how you define, you know, an eligible patient or an eligible provider. We'll come back to this topic around healthcare professional when we get to HRSA DRL number four. That's your provider list. So if you're going to take a broader stance in defining who's who's an eligible um, provider for your 340B covered entity and you're saying it's going to be a healthcare professional, the expectation is that those individuals will also be on the provider list. So it may not just be a list of physicians from your medical staff office. It may be a more comprehensive list of you know, your nursing staff that are in the infusion center or radiology technicians working in the diagnostic imaging center, pharmacists that are managing a an MTM service. So, you know, again, you got to think about the other aspects of your 340B program. If you broaden your definition of who's eligible as a provider for 340B purposes, we need to account for them in the provider list that we provide to HRSA as well. Uh, Greg, that's pretty good. I, I'll be honest. And just for the group, right, Greg and I really, un we call it unscripted because we don't actually talk about this at a time. We, we're just literally just real time. And I will say, I don't know, I go to that level. A lot of times I, I just do the providers and then I just we kind of put on what nurses and pharmacists qualify. But I think for thoroughness, that's actually a, a great idea. That doesn't mean it has to be updated regularly, but, um, you know, especially for a HRSA audit, I'd recommend updating lists that thoroughly because that'll provide you a much better defensive stance if they're all there. That's a, that's a, that's a nice recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I think it, thinking a bit more in terms of HRSA audit readiness as opposed to, you know, daily operations, you're, you're not going to give yeah. your TPA a list of, of right, nurses right. and radiology technicians to use for qualification purposes in the TPA. But, you know, they may pull a HRSA may pull a sample during an audit that wasn't written by one of your providers, but was administered by one of these healthcare professionals. They're going to want to see validation that that's an individual that has some type of relationship with the covered entity. So you may have to pull an HR cover sheet from that employee's file or some other documentation from uh, a department within your hospital outside of where you typically get your provider eligibility information, which is going to be medical staff office, maybe a GME location for resident physicians. So um, it ends up being a little more complicated than you, you might first think when you're kind of preparing for demonstrating provider eligibility. Again, if you're using a broader definition like we suggest. Uh, can I give the farm away on one more? Sure. Okay, I'm get, I got Greg's permission, everybody. So there you go. If anyone yells at me later. Um, the other one, I think for the, the hospital one, right? So that's one I, I believe, uh, the, the, the administered drug section. 
Yep. Another one, because if you look at patient eligibility, there's a section says, including patient status change for hospitals. That, that really wasn't in there years ago. And one thing we've been doing for years is really identifying how does your data flow to your TPA? Meaning that do you just, is, is the patient status at the time the drug is charged, which could be administered or when it's dispensed, is that what flows to your TPA? And if that doesn't get updated, if there's a retrospect, retrospective patient status change after the fact or something happens where it's the, the patient status changes because maybe they, they said inpatient, but now they're outpatient. How are, you know, how do we handle that? Because that's really tricky be, because during a hearse audit, you know, you could look at a, a 340 accumulated drug. And there's a retro inpatient order and in the T or in your EHR, it now says inpatient. You're like, wait, but when the drug was actually charged, it was outpatient. So make sure you understand exactly how your data flows and what yeah. gets changed and what doesn't. And make sure you put in there a common phrase we put in there. If you're just sending the charge at the or at the if you're sending the data to your TP at the time the drug is charged and whatever the patient status was at the time and you're not sending a correction for all these retro changes, then we like to put in there patient status change at the time the drug is charged, which could be administered or dispensed, and retrospective patient status changes are not taken into account. And we like to go even further and say in either direction, either inpatient to outpatient or outpatient inpatient, because we're saying, look, we're not we're not doing this to game the system. That's just the way the data works. And I, like, I always like to make the argument, if someone ever pushes back, I always say, look, not that very many people do, but if you had a physically separate inventory in the pharmacy, and then this would be a complete nightmare, but say you did. Um, in fact, one of our clients did for a period of time, and, and hopefully if they listen, I think they, one of the uh, people there listen, they're up in New York, uh, fun site, I was on site, they had a physically separate inventory for a big dish hospital, I was like, wow, that's crazy, um, but I don't, but they changed, so they don't do that anymore, but if you did, then technically your process would have to be, okay, I got my label, I'm going to fill this drug, what's the patient status right now, oh, they're outpatient, they're in the ER, boom, I'm going to go, I'm going to get 340B drug, oh, they're inpatient right now, I'm going to get inpatient drugs. So there's no difference in the virtual environment is my point to HRSA if they push back on that statement, because that's how it would work if we had a physically separate inventory, right? I wouldn't go back and say, hey, I need to now swap that drug out because there's a retro change. It's just, that does, that's impractical. So that, that's yep. why we feel that's appropriate to, to, to have that statement and do it that way. Well, one more topic before we move away from uh, diversion. It's the last bullet point for one eye under the CE. This is and this may be a little bit of a hot topic, or there's been some chatter amongst uh, the 340B community lately, documenting and accounting for waste of a drug not dispensed or administered to a patient. Any thoughts around that? Well, I'm scared to answer that question um, because I did see that recent e internal email within our team because there has been some chatter around, can you document or can you accumulate waste if the drug's not administered to a patient? Because my personal view, and then I'd love to get your input on that email, but my personal view is yes, you can, as long as you know who, what the patient stat, what, what the patient's status was, if you were going to administer it. So, for a good example, if the patient was an infusion patient, so you know that's an outpatient, or they received the drug, um, and and the part they received or or um, accumulated was outpatient, then you know, okay, the waste for that then is clearly outpatient, even if you didn't document the waste. And even if you didn't add the J, it says it's a single dose vial and you didn't do the J, um, J the J code waste modifier, the JW modifier, right? Because yeah. maybe it's a drug that's, it's not a high cost drug. And so we're not going to waste time putting the effort into to try and capture the waste, but we know that it's a single dose vial. We know our process is to waste anything we don't use after that. So then you manually capture that waste and you add it back because otherwise it's going to impact you, especially if you're a dish hospital or PD hospital is, it's going to go to whack. So so I feel it's appropriate to do it that way, but but you know there is that internal that recent 
kind of chatter on that and want to get your thoughts on the chatter because I'm I'm still digesting that and trying to see, okay, do we have to change practice or recommendations or not? Yeah, I think it's confusing because we've we've seen, you know, Apexis has actually published some some guides or some proposed policy tools that would allow covered entities to account for any 340B purchased drug that's been wasted or maybe expired and allow you to reaccumulate the 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 quantity of that wasted drug um, based on your procurement history. Um, maybe there have been some folks out there that have challenged that stance, but I think we do have, you know, at least going through the uh, 340B ACE curriculum, some guidance that's been put out there by Apexis that would give covered entities the flexibility of tracking expired or wasted drug that's not attributed to patient administration usage and repopulating accumulations for what was wasted based on a proportion of your purchases across your your different accounts, so 340B, GPO, or WAC if you're a, you're a dish hospital. So again, not, not a practice that I ever thought to question based on what I'd seen put out by Apexis before, but there seems to have been some discussion maybe through some other vendor webinars that maybe that's a strategy that's less, uh, less compliant than others have uh, indicated. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what to make of it. I know, and I know it's and probably not. It's like, it's, and just to be clear for it's probably more that statement was more around like reverse distribution or expired drugs and, and how to use that. But I agree, right? If if you can go back to your actual purchasing process and say, okay, yes, the drug expired, but it was 340 GPO or whatever it was, right? It makes sense to me when the drug expires, you can reaccumulate it. Um, yeah. You know, like if because to me, if you're like a good example is. Um, well, maybe it's not a great example, but but we always talk about if if you purchase that drug on 340 because you had an accumulation and then it expired and then you reverse distribute it, a reverse distribution is actually a return to the manufacturer. That's what I mean. They're not going to reuse it, but that's real. You're returning to 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 the manufacturer and they're giving you credit for it based on the price you paid. So if you reverse distribute it as 340B, my argument is, well, if you're, you know, so if you identify as 340B, you reverse distribute it on 340B, shouldn't you be able to reaccumulate that? You never got to use it on your patient. Or you didn't get to reuse it, so I, I think you can reaccumulate. So I agree. A little gray area there. I think covered entities should probably talk, you know, speak to their, um, uh, you know, consultants and legal and compliance on if they're going to be accumulating reverse distribution or waste. You know, what's appropriate for the organization. Yeah. All right. Good. One K. It's mechanisms to prevent duplicate discounts at the covered entity and offsite facilities for physician-administered drugs, outpatient prescriptions, and in scenarios where you are billing multiple state Medicaid agencies. So this is details around duplicate discount prevention. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this one's relatively straightforward, right? You just have to remember you, you, it needs to be done for both your. There's three bullets. There's your administered drugs. So um, again, that's going to be your um, mixed use and your potential clean sites. Then your outpatient prescriptions, which should be retail. I should point out, um, well, I don't want, oh, it's jumping the gun a little bit, but um, there's L, which is duplicate discounts in all your pharmacies for outpatient prescriptions. Where This is where I think K and L actually overlap because they left outpatient yeah. prescriptions in K and then they talk about outpatient prescriptions in L because L previously only talked about contract pharmacy. In fact, yeah. J previously only talked about contract pharmacy and it felt like for diversion, well, where's in-house retail? Um, which yeah. maybe you thought was an I. So I think they tried to clean it up by saying J and L are now all pharmacies, not contract pharmacies. But again, in K, they left outpatient prescriptions. So it's basically covered in K and L. But but so you need to make sure that you're looking at all three of those situations. So maybe we're just going to group K and L together. 
Now in L, you do have to make sure that that's all pharmacies, but for contract pharmacies specifically, in general, you're gonna have to say, we exclude, and you're gonna wanna add how we exclude. That becomes really critical because you know, a lot of times they say, well, we just exclude it. And then HRSA always pushes back and they give you an AFI. I will say it's an AFI, typically not a finding. You have to put more detail for how you exclude it. And mm -hmm. so going back to K for when you're carving in, they also want to know how do you carve in? You know, are you adding multiple? Are you adding modifiers? Uh, is it your NPI? What's what's the most important there? And then the one that is really big, and I actually I think is a huge Hearst audit focus, and I know we've mentioned it previously. You want to talk about out-of-state Medicaid. That is yeah. low-hanging fruit for a Hearst auditor. So right, uh, great. You got to talk about okay, we're carving in these two states, but we're not carving the rest of them. And we don't carve in the rest of them. Are you not billing? Are you not getting reimbursed? Or are you not accumulating? Or is it a combination of those? And you just want to highlight, how are we preventing duplicate discount? That's really what you want to get to. Here's how we prevent the, du prevent the duplicate discount and just outline that as concisely as in your policy as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if I heard, it was you that said this or someone else, but if you're not carving in for all 48 states that allow you to carve in, you're you're carving out some portion of your 340B program. So that, that you know, the, the process by which you exclude those out-of-state Medicaid that you're not capturing in your accumulations needs to be outlined in policy. You mentioned the modifiers. Modifiers are not, so for example, California, UD modifier, Texas is a U8 modifier. Those are state-specific requirements, but not, uh, HRSA doesn't have statutory authority to enforce the state billing requirements. You think those need to be outlined in policy regardless? That's a good point. That's actually a very good point. I, I still recommend it just, just to yeah. be thorough because I like to be transparent, right? I, I'm kind of of the, oh, hey, if this is what the state's requiring, I'm going to put it in there. Um, but to your point, it, I, you don't have a lot of, you don't have as much risk for modifier um, errors in your policy because HRSA is going to focus on the NPI, which I find strange because some states don't use the NPI or the Medicaid exclusion file to, rent, to prevent the duplicate discount. They use modifiers. But, if, but one thing to talk about there, the reason you want to actually cover both there's some states that say to add a modifier, but they're using the NPI or the MEF, the Medicaid exclusion file, to prevent the duplicate discount. They're using the modifiers for billing. A Colorado is a, a good version of that, where they do require modifiers on both retail prescriptions and um, administered drugs. And I check with them every year, and they keep saying, yeah, we're still only using the MEF. That's because you know they're concerned that they're not getting 100% compliance with modifiers, and they don't want to erroneously cause a duplicate discount. I do think that means that they're probably losing some of their um, their rebate potential because not all prescriptions um, and not all administered drugs are going to be three four to be eligible, and, and therefore that's you know that's the, that's that's Colorado State, but then there's a lot of states that only rely on the modifier. I think California you mentioned is a good example. I think Texas is one where it doesn't matter if your MPI is on there or not. If you don't add the modifier, they're going to seek a rebate on it. Um, and so I, I personally feel you should put it in there, but. But to be fair, that's that's a gray area, and you may choose not to. Um, and that's your con. You probably wouldn't have uh, risk for a finding if you didn't, since HRSA can't statutorily enforce that. Another area that's not addressed in the data request list, but we've seen addressed in AFIs through HRSA audit reports, is uh, details regarding both fee-for-service and managed Medicaid carbon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I totally, totally forgot to talk about that. You're right, right? HRSA really only can talk about fee-for-service even though the GAO, even though everyone realizes, hey, managed Medicaid is just a bit as big of a risk for duplicate discount um, to manufacturers as fee-for-service, primarily the entire DRL, when it talks about Medicaid, um, is focused on fee-for-service. And, and we're not going to get to it today, but there's a Medicaid section, I think it's nine. It, it yep. specifically says fee-for-service. So it doesn't even mention managed Medicaid as something you have to report on. And 
And again, we've talked, I'm sure we've mentioned it before, but that's because HRSA's last um, publication on duplicate discounts was in 2001. And of course, the managed Medicaid was included in the rebate process as part of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare in 2010. And they have, since they don't have rulemaking authority for that component of the 340B program, they really can't update it. It is something I know they want to do. They just can't at this time. All right. 1M, this is something that I think comes up, particularly with newer clients that I work with, how you define your process for self-disclosure to HRSA and what your definition of non-compliance or material breach is. Rob, how do you approach that? Yeah, first of all, you have to have you have to have it in there somewhere, right? Sometimes people don't define it in there. So just having a definition, I think Apexis has a few recommendations. I always tell people, try and keep it simple. When you put too many things or get too detailed, like say, okay, it's going to be X percent per manufacturer. I'm like, ah, keep it broad, right? Keep it to your whole three, to maybe your universe, maybe your retail universe or your, your administered drug universe. And really talk about a percentage of total program because you're really trying to assess when does it become material? When is it big enough that you have to self-report? I do want to highlight self-reporting to HRSA is different from actually fixing it. You may not self-report. It might not be material, so you don't have to self-report it to HRSA, but it doesn't mean you're off the hook from correcting the issue or making the manufacturers whole. So those are two different things. So this is really talking about self-disclosure. We often like to recommend, I like to recommend five months, of five months, 5% um, of total spend. Like, so if the cost of the, the drug cost for the whatever issue you had exceeds 5% of your spend for the same time period. So if the issue occurred over six months and you want to look at six months of purchasing, and if it's more than 5%, then it's probably material, right? It's a pretty big threshold to hit, but that's important. I like to add an and function to mine, which is and is not going to self-correct within six months, right? We often have reversals of things. It's not we got negative accumulation because something happened there or corrections that you find due to some error. Yeah. And so I, I personally feel, right, I, I think even manufacturers are like, okay, calling us every time for one little tiny thing, it's going to really irritate us. It's going to take a lot of time and effort. So see if it self-corrects, because if it self-corrects because you're about to administer that, that drug to another patient, you're good. And a lot of times that drug's sitting on the sh shelf if you're negative. So it's not like you actually diverted anything um, because it's just you prospectively have it sitting on your shelf and it's going to self-correct. The self-correction means it's now back your, your positive accumulation or new, no accumulation and so you're back to normal. So that's my recommendation. But Greg, I'd love to hear your input because sometimes you've got different ideas that actually are better than mine and, and I want to learn too. No, I kind of follow the same approach or same philosophy that you do, Rob. Uh, be practical about it. Be able to speak to it. But I can't recall a scenario where we had uh, a client go through a HRSA audit and HRSA came back either with a finding or even an AFI that suggested that the material breach definition need to be changed. You never encountered that, have you? No, because it, I think well, it's a good point. I don't think HRSA has authority to tell you what the material breach needs to be. And I've seen you know, 10% sometimes like, okay. And uh, yeah. And again, HRSA kind of looks, I mean, I'm guessing at some point HRSA would give you an AFI and say, okay, yeah, 50% is a bit high. So I've never seen 50% just for the record, but uh, yeah. so make it reasonable, make it make sense. Um, that yeah. You say, yeah, that's material to me. That's a, that's a big, big deal. I better tell HRSA about that. Oh, second part is they also want to know as part of that, not only what or when you would, but um, who's responsible for that, right? So a lot of times you have some kind of government committee, uh, like a, a guidance council or a 340 steering committee, you know, make sure you identify who's responsible for identifying what a material breach is yeah. and, and make sure that when you do have compliance issues that you're like, okay, this is getting close, we think, make sure that committee's aware of it and that someone does the math, okay? Yeah. And say, okay, this was 0.5%, this was all right, we're good. We're not self-reporting that. It's not, not we're close to 5%, but make sure you're doing that math and documenting that in those minutes. Because that'll let HRSA know if it ever comes up. No, we checked on that. It was below material breach. 
we self-corrected or we worked directly with the manufacturer, but we didn't we didn't feel we had to, to bother Hersa with it because it didn't uh, break our threshold. That, that's a great point. That I, some, Sometimes that's a question that stumps folks where you say, okay, when do you invoke your material breach definition? And folks are like, well, I, I don't know. And it really, it should be part of your, your self-auditing guide that we talked about earlier. There needs to be kind of a threshold. And if you exceed this threshold, that's when 340B steering committee or some oversight committee is going to make a determination about whether or not material breach has been met and what the steps are to make sure that Hearst is notified and the manufacturer is made whole. So definitely want to be prepared and understand how you would close the loop on a material breach. Excellent. All right. Ooh, take us home. Take us home, Greg. Yeah, last one, letter N. Um, and maybe this is a sore subject. I don't know, because I think they added this to the DRL uh, after FAQ 4301 was published. Um, they've added some parentheses here that maybe indicates that this provision's uh, temporary in the midst of uh, you know uh, extenuating circumstances. But uh, letter N is definition of an eligible site when the location's not on the MCR for hospitals or um, not on the grant for grantees uh, for circumstances uh, like COVID-19 or flooding. So this is use of 340- Yeah, et cetera, right? So use of 340B drugs in uh, non-registered uh, uh, locations that aren't on your eligibility documents. Okay, I know we're running long, everybody. Stick with yeah. us, we're almost done, but I got a bone to pick with this only from the fact that I had to do a thesis once. When you use e.g. that's kind of, Latin, but we're going to say that's for example, and it says COVID-19 flooding and et cetera, ETC, you don't need to put ETC in a for example because it's not an all-inclusive list. If you do I.E. which is really, that's an all-inclusive list, then you'd have to put ETC if what you put in parentheses doesn't encompass everything that you're talking about. So sorry, Hersa, that's actually incorrect. But to their point, should have been I.E. or don't include the ETC. Either way, <clears throat> they gave two examples and clearly they said it's open to how many other examples you have, but you're right. This one frustrates me because they took it away and then they didn't fix it on DRL 24, which tells me again, here's one more example of Carsa, yeah. even in their DR request is asking us to identify if we do consider sites eligible before being on the MCR. And if that's the case, then if it's not allowed, then why would you even ask for it to be in the policy? Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like they're they're leaving it up for interpretation because they're describing this as a scenario for special circumstances. And they mentioned COVID and we know FAQ 4301 came out at the beginning of the PHE. Um, and HRSA does allow flexibilities when health emergencies are uh, declared for weather related issues, flooding, fires, whatnot. But they're also not limiting it to any type of circumstance. So so maybe it's a matter of defining when you would qualify a location as eligible before it hits the Medicare cost report and just stick to that in your policy and procedure? My special circumstance could simply be if that new location, this is, this is I'm just, this is brand new. I'm thinking, oh, this is truly unscripted because I'm making it up right now, everybody. But because it's something I talk about, right? Or we talked about with, um, uh, oh gosh, um, I'm sure I get that right. Um, Emily, we talked about this. Was it Emily? Okay. I, I was yeah. trying to remember, okay. Where she said, Remember that when a new location becomes eligible by CMS, so CMS, you're feeding the cost report, you've got the next one. Well, now CMS is going to, you're going to bill CMS based on that. And so remember, that means that that new location is going to be using the hospital's NPI. Yep. And so if if you're now like, okay, well, great, how am going to do duplicate discount? Because if that's non-qualified, but I'm not telling the state it's qualified, is that a special circumstance? Can I say my special circumstance is, hey, I'm using the hospital's NPI for billing for this new location. Because yeah. of that, I'm going to consider this new site eligible. Like we weren't told what those special circumstances are because if there's an ETC on a, for example, again, I'm sorry to harp on that. Um, 
but I, I don't know. I, I yeah, for a state that's using the MEF for um, invoicing manufacturers for rebates, they're going to exclude those claims for rebating, right? Right. Or one of my special circumstances, my billing can only do it one way. If this NPI is on there and if there's drugs on there, it's going to put the UD modifier, the U8 modifier, the SE modifier, the JG modifier. I, I kind of think that's a special circumstance. So yeah, yeah. Not, not saying that's the workaround for that. But again, just one more piece of information for why, if you're looking at do we use what was FAQ 4301 or not? And just another, just another example on the pile of why it makes sense that it should be allowed. Yeah. So again, I think a little too soon to say how Hearst is going to interpret use of 340B drugs in those new locations that aren't on the MCR are not registered. Just haven't seen Hearst audit reports that cover the span of time where FAQ 4301's been retired and covered entities are still kind of operating under the provisions of 4301. So I'm sure we will talk about that again at the beginning of the year next year once we start seeing some Hearst audit reports come back addressing that. Hey, Greg, can I throw a request out to the community? Mm-hmm. We know there's one covered entity that we're waiting for results on that in June was audited and was using this provision, right? So another, and it wasn't on the filed MCR yet because their MCR wasn't filed. We're waiting to see what happens with their audit. Um, it's technically not one of our clients, but um, we're aware of them. If you're listening and you also have been through a HRSA audit after May 11th and was using an immediate location eligibility or provisional eligibility um, prior to being on the MCR and you do receive your HRSA audit back and it's either not a finding or you challenge it and they reverse the finding, will you please let us know? Um, we can definitely be, an, we, of course, we'll be anonymous about it, but we'd love to just get that information because I think we're all waiting, waiting on, is it pins and needles or whatever, um, trying to say what is HRSA actually going to do, right? We, no one really knows. I don't think Hearst has told anybody that, yes, we're going to, you know, hand out a, a diversion finding, but if you're positive procedures or if you articulate your circumstances, then then we'll reverse it. Or are they just not going to issue a finding? Like, we really, really want to know, because I've got a lot of clients in there. We're a little gun shy, right? Hearst will pull this thing out. What do we do? We don't want to have to deal with this issue. Um, so if anyone does get that report back, um, that wasn't that situation. Of course, that's only if your audit was after May 11th of 23 please let us know and we can share that with the community. And um, again, we won't mention your actual covered in his name or anything. Yeah, you can hit us up at 340B unscripted at spendmen.com uh, with any experience that you've had recently around this particular issue. We'd appreciate it. Yeah, or or any of the policy elements that um, was problematic or that that you have a different take on. You know, I always want to share, uh, this is Greg and I and our experience. And, and I feel like we have a ton of experience, but it, we don't have all the experience. And so if you've got some different takes, let us know. And we always like to add that uh, to the body of knowledge that we're putting out there. Yeah, there might be a strategy to approaching policies that we haven't even thought of that other folks are using that we may want to, you know, adopt as our own. So, yeah, if you've got any insight or any thoughts or questions that come up around our discussion around policies, definitely email us. Rob, these are supposed to be short clips. And here we've spent an hour just talking about <laughs> section one. of the Section data. what? Sometimes we call it a section two, but mostly section one. Um, yeah, that was a long one, folks. Thanks for hanging in there, and hopefully it was helpful. Um, again, just teamwork makes the dream work. All right. Next time we talk about the data request list, we're going to cover covered entity eligibility documentation. So Medicare cost reports, trial balances, trial balance crosswalks, government contracts, and information off of the EHB for grantee covered entities. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, Rob. It's good catching up with you again. I was. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.